let's start off just by recalling maybe a song that you're familiar with, maybe one you are not so familiar with. I think it might be one of, now I'm going to say this, and as soon as I say this, Darren's going to sing a song. I'm like, oh no, that, that's my favorite. But this is one of my favorite um, songs to sing in this season. Um, and Pastor Darren doesn't always actually sing this song during um, Holy Week and Good Friday and things like that, but, but it is a very fitting song. It is how, how sweet and awful is the place, which I remember back when I was a little kid, so confused by that song, Sweet and Awful. What, what? But of course, that is referring to the idea of awe-filled. This is a place that causes me to be full of awe. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors. Well, everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and went and enter while well, there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? This song, of course, paints a picture of a parable that Jesus told about the wedding feast. And you can see this in places like Matthew 22, for example. And it's this, this picture of Christ's kingdom as a, as a feast, as a feast that we're all gathering in and, and we're joining with Christ around the banquet table. And every guest there is saying the same thing to Jesus Christ and to themselves. Lord, why am I here. Why am I a guest? Why was I made to hear your song and respond and come in obedience to you? This is what they're all asking. And, and the cross of Christ um, speaks to this. It, it, it reveals to us when we look at the stories of the crucifixion that the natural man doesn't come to Jesus. The natural man uh, our natural sinful responses inside of us uh, doesn't respond in faith and love and joy and doesn't want to come to Jesus when it hears the message of the cross. The natural man puts up excuses. Um, and that's, that's what we see. We see, as Watts' hymn would tell us, Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Most people, in hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ and hearing of what he did on the cross, make a wretched choice and rather starve than come to Jesus. Now, of course, we're speaking metaphorically of starving and eating and these things, but we're talking about a spiritual hunger. We're talking about a spiritual hunger. And in our passage today, we see, we see a bunch of sinners, a bunch of wretched sinners making choices. We see exactly four choices at the cross, wretched sinners at the cross. You could say it like that. We see three wretched and starving refusals of Christ. And we see one wretched and starving sinner rejoice in Christ. And that's why I particularly love this story. But before we can kind of look into these different 
um, um, choices in response to the cross of Jesus Christ, we kind of need to catch up. Where, where, where are we at in Luke's gospel? Of course, Luke uh, preaches or writes a gospel to show that Jesus is God's man for God's plan to save sinners. And he he, he kind of emphasizes this theme about God's plan and Jesus coming to seek and save sinners all throughout the gospel of Luke. And uh, we're here actually just as Jesus is coming to the, the, the foot of the cross or where the cross will be in verse 32. He's, he's making the last few steps up to Golgotha and we see Luke refers to it as the place called the skull. And let's just even read those two verses there. As Jesus is approaching, uh, the crucifixion site, two others were, uh, who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull there, they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Of course, at this point, as you all probably know from hearing this story over and over every single year, Jesus has been beaten and flogged within like an inch of his life. Uh, the Roman system for flogging was meant to weaken the criminals so much that it, their death on the cross would go quicker. Um, they, they, they intended to do this. Matter of fact, sometimes the flogging in and of itself would, would kill the person before he even made it to the cross. Um, and crucifixion was mainly a form of deterrence. They mainly wanted to kill people in this way, in this gruesome way, by hanging them on a cross to tell everybody else that would, who, who would see these, um, these criminals on the cross, hey, this is what we're going to do to you if you come against us. This is Rome, the, the power of Rome, the government of Rome, trying to deter and stop and suppress rebellion in any way that they could. Matter of fact, for that reason, they would put crosses in the most public spaces. They would put it on the public roads. Our, our, you know, modern day freeways is where they would put crosses. And the, the point was to give everybody that saw these crosses that were making their way to Jerusalem or out of Jerusalem to give them nightmares. This is what's going to happen to me if I try to stand against the power and the might of Rome. Um, actually, it's a kind of a horrifying, um, illustration, but in 70 AD, when the Romans finally crushed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, it's said that they crucified so many people that they ran out of wood. Like they ran out of wood. They, they, there were just so many people to kill um, during that rebellion. Now Luke points out to us that Jesus is on his way to be crucified. And notice what he says in verse 32. He says, Jesus was led with criminals. There were two others who were criminals that were led away to be put to death with him. Luke's wording here is interesting. Well, Matthew and Mark refer to these two men as robbers, or maybe could be translated revolutionaries. Luke points out that they are simply criminals. It's a very uh, general term. And it seems that Luke is trying to present Jesus as one who is numbered 
with the transgressors, with the sinners. So he uses this very general term. Matter of fact, if you turn back to Luke 22, Luke 22, 37, all of Luke 22 is just basically saying, hey, Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows what's coming, and it's all according to plan. But in Luke 22, verse 37, Jesus says, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. This had to be what was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to be numbered with sinners. Jesus came to be treated like a criminal. And that's what we see in 2332 as well. Jesus is numbered with the transgressors. Now, once again, crucifixion was one of the the ugliest uh, forms of death that the world has ever concocted. It was. It came from the Persians, and Alexander the Great stole it, and of course the Romans stole everything that seemed to work from the Greeks, so the Romans stole it from the Greeks, and they perfected it, perfected it in its torture. And if any of you want to really get a medical look at the uh, gruesomeness of a crucifixion, there's plenty of things you can read. I just read this last week on the physical death of Jesus Christ, um, which kind of has the, the death of Christ um, described from a medical standpoint. It is, it is very um, intense. But basically, uh, what, what all of those studies can give you is a picture on what actually is happening here. Crucifixion is meant to be disgraceful. It's meant to be shameful. Right, You are exposed, probably naked, before all to see, and you're weak and you're helpless and you can't do anything because your hands and your ankles are nailed to a tree or a piece of wood hanging in the air. And you have searing pain in your wrists and your hands because you're hanging here, and in order to breathe, you need to pull yourself up on the cross, which causes incredible pain in your wrists and your feet. And so in order to breathe, you go through intense pain, and then finally, eventually, you don't die because of lack of blood. You, you probably die because of suffocation caused by exhaustion. It's just a horrible picture that we see, a horrible way to kill someone. And the Romans had perfected it. And, but, but we should be always thoughtful. We always have these, these, these kind of dramatic displays of the crucifixion, but we should always remember what our Bible says. The, the gospel writers don't seem as fascinated by the physical sufferings of the cross as perhaps Hollywood would or our dramatic side would. They all actually only use three words, the same three words to describe what happened. There they crucified him. Four words in English, three words in Greek. It almost seems as though the gospel writers are more focused on the spiritual suffering of the cross than on the physical element. Or they just know that everybody knew what crucifixion was. But, but here is where in the Gospel of Luke we see something surprising, unexpected. At least this would be surprising and unexpected if, if, if you had seen crucifixions every single day of your life and you had walked by these things. If you grew up in the first century and you lived in Roman times, what comes next in the Gospel of Luke is not normal, not surprising. What happens? We see after they crucify him, in verse 34 of Luke's gospel, Jesus speaks. Now remember, it is very difficult, very painful to speak in and of itself. Every word that Jesus gives costs him dearly physically. But verse 34 says, he gathers breath to say the following words. Father, forgive them, for they know not 
what they do. Commonly, criminals who are dying on a cross, of course, would be either doing one of two things, as you would probably be doing, either begging and pleading for mercy and begging and and pleading for their own innocence or just lashing out and hurling the most vile, vile speech they could think of at their executioners. But you never saw someone offering and praying for the person that is killing them. This is unheard of. This is unusual. And, and we see once again here a, a kind of an emphasis of Luke. He, he wants to show us in Luke 23 that Jesus is killed like a criminal, treated like a criminal. But he dies in complete innocence, and he dies like a king who is righteous. And this is all according to plan, as Luke 22 sets up for us. What was he doing here in verse 34? Who was he praying for? Well, in in one sense, you could say he was praying for everybody. He was praying for the Jerusalem leaders. He'd be praying for the chief priests. He'd be praying for the Roman soldiers. He'd be praying even for the, the, the criminals on his left and his right, who in Matthew and Mark are said to also be heaping on insults against him. In one sense, yeah, he he prayed for all of those people because we see evidences of all of those people being saved. And when Jesus prays for you, it is transformational to you. When Jesus says, Father, have mercy on them, it actually has impact. And you receive mercy and your heart is changed to believe the gospel. But I think right here we should notice our context and, and, and really think about it. And, and just notice where Luke situates this prayer of Jesus. Jesus is praying right after and right before we are told about how the Romans killed him. Jesus is probably mostly praying here for the very soldiers, the very guards who are putting him to death. And this is a powerful picture of Jesus Christ, isn't it? It's a powerful picture. We see Jesus here actively praying and seeking mercy and forgiveness for the very soldiers who are ignorantly casually, easily putting Jesus to death. Jesus is praying for those people who sin ignorantly against him. And here is where we actually meet our first group of wretched sinners, you could say. Once again, remember, the first three are wretched sinners who reject Jesus, and the last one is a wretched sinner who receives Jesus once again, man in his natural state rejects the truth of the gospel, as, as 1 Corinthians would tell us. The, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, right? And that's what we see. We see three examples of people who say this is absolutely foolish. Why would I follow a Messiah who is put to death? But let's look at the first wretched sinner. That we'll, we'll call this group the religious the religious, you could say, the religious. Um, he is scorned, he is scorned and rejected by the religious, or to put it in maybe terms you understand, by those who are doing pretty good without him, who have a life essentially that they're okay with in their current religious system. Jesus in Luke's gospel came to seek and save the lost, not the righteous, as we're told in 531. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So these religious people had no need of Jesus because they considered themselves pretty good on their own. 
And then right before Jesus comes into Jerusalem, we see with his, his episode of Zacchaeus, uh, Jesus says this, uh, Zacchaeus, who was a, uh, a sinner, a tax collector, someone that nobody liked in Jerusalem. We see Jesus say this, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus in his very purpose of his ministry and, and his whole life was particularly offensive to the religious people because not only did he come to spend time with and seek and save people that they thought were beneath them, but he also rejected and rebuked them in their religious system. You guys think you're doing so well, but really you are, you are um, as, as he says in the temple, uh, tombs whitewashed on the outside, but inside your dead bones. That's what you look like to God. That's your true spiritual state. And they, of course, hated him for this because he exposed the emptiness of their religion. And he also, uh, he also supposed before them that Jesus, that, that God was after the sinners, not the righteous to save. And we see here in verse 35 uh, that the people stood by watching. And we have a passive group of revilers, but Luke focuses on the active. He says in verse 35, But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. They are scoffing at Jesus. They are, the word means, turning up their noses at Jesus. They are showing complete contempt for Jesus. He is not God's chosen one in their mind. Notice the phrase they use, chosen one, the one sent by God to 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 be their Messiah, to be the one that they must receive and respond to in obedience and faith. He is not the chosen one because if he is if he was the chosen one, he would save himself. And they say that kind of, if he is, then he would do this kind of statement. Uh, they'd say, if he really was the Son of God, he would definitely do this. They've already decided what their Messiah should do, and this is clearly not their Messiah, because he's not doing what they think he should be doing. Now, there is a touch of irony here in their statement. Do you see it? Do you notice it? They admit <laughs> that Jesus saved others. No, notice what they say. He saved others. Let him save himself. They have seen him save others. To what extent are they talking about Lazarus at the tomb where Jesus rose him from the dead? Are they talking about casting out evil demons? Are they talking about healing the sick? Are they talking about calling sinners like tax collectors to follow him? I don't know. But it seems as though they meant some of that in some sense of the word. And this shows you an incredible picture of unbelief, right? You can see a lot of different things and see a lot of convincing evidence for who Jesus is and still revile him, scoff at him, uh, say he is not my chosen one. And in the end, their response is not that surprising, though, right? Because this is the heart they've always had towards Jesus. Why would we uh, suspect or ever think that now that we're at the end of Luke's gospel, that suddenly the religious leaders would change in their heart and attitude towards Jesus? This is the way they've always been towards Jesus. They have always trusted in them own, their own selves. They've always, they've always hated Jesus because he confronted them. They have always said, we do not need to believe in him because we are pretty good on our Oh, and this response is not that surprising in that sense. Let's turn on to our second, our second kind of response to Jesus, our second group of wretched sinners that we see here at the cross. We could refer to this group as the mighty, the mighty at the cross of Jesus Christ. 
he is not only scoffed at by the religious, we also see Jesus is mocked by the mighty. And of course, what we're talking about here is the soldiers in verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. Now, the soldiers at this time, Roman soldiers, probably weren't actually from Italy or Roman in that sense. They were probably recruits from the lands that the Romans had invaded, and they had they had recruited from those lands people to serve in their army, especially in places where actual Roman soldiers wouldn't want to um, be stationed. So it's very likely that these men were actually from places like Syria, um, Samaria, um, Edom, and even from Judea. These might have even been Jewish men that were these soldiers. Now, of course, what, what is this? These are men that have sided with power. These are men who have chosen enmity with their own people in order to find security from, from kind of aligning themselves with the powerful in this world. They, they only feared those who were in power. They only respected might and strength. That's who these Roman soldiers were, and they were very cruel. There seems to be an intense cruelty that they show towards um, these, um, towards towards the Jewish, but particularly here towards Jesus himself. They had really sold everything to follow Rome. They they here are offering Jesus sour wine. This, of course, is the cheap wine, the inexpensive wine that that soldiers would drink because soldiers like to drink a lot, and so they would drink this. Also, day laborers would drink this cheap wine, and really, the purpose of sour wine was really to take away the thirst after a hard day's work. So this really speaks towards the amount of physical exertion that they had gone under to put these three criminals on the cross. And then they have this, this, this moment where they are offering sour wine to him. Now, you probably should separate this from the other Gospels where they're offering wine to Jesus. There's actually probably three times where Jesus is offered sour wine of some of some. Um, import here in in the crucifixion account in matthew twenty seven thirty four he is offered wine before he gets on the cross and he rejects that in matthew twenty seven and forty eight he is offered wine at the very end of the cross in the last three hours and and here we 're in the first three hours on the cross, six hours total, so that means Jesus was offered wine three times at least while he was on the cross and here what is the what is the the purpose of them offering him wine? Probably it wasn't them actually putting it on a hyssop branch and giving it to him or, or getting up there on a ladder and saying, here, you look thirsty. This is probably the Roman soldiers mocking him and pretending to kind of be like in, in a king's court, like they had treated him before, saying, hail, here, here, king of the Jews, come down and drink with us if you are really the king of the Jews. And of course, the Romans never missed an opportunity to mock the people that they had conquered. What do they say about this Jesus in verse 38? They say, this is the king of the Jews. And uh, this is, is emphatic. It's like the king of the Jews, this one. This is your king, Jews. That's why you shouldn't rebel against us. Now, this is another response of a sinner against Jesus. And this is, once again, not a very surprising response, right? The powerful, according to this world, don't need a Savior, don't want a Savior, don't look for a Savior who dies. They want somebody who can defeat all of their enemies. This is 
This is uh, the Romans' response to Jesus. We don't need to fear this man. He does not cause us to tremble. Now, both the religious and the mighty, they, they show you something about the truth of the gospel, don't they? They, they show you that when you are mighty and powerful and in position in this world, receiving the gospel is harder and harder and harder for you. Your heart will be prone against it. And this is actually where we come to the, the third wretched sinner in our story. I would refer to this man a, a little bit more so in, in surprise that he is here. We would expect one of the criminals on the cross to be on Jesus' side or to share mercy with him. But instead, we find another uh, wretched, sinful response to Jesus from one of the criminals himself on the cross in verse 39. We'll refer to this as the embittered. He is hated by those who are embittered, those, those who are angry, those who are resentful. Uh, because their life is so difficult and they perceive that the, the, the world is against them and that they have been treated with injustice and their life should have ended a different way. Jesus will be hated by those who are embittered. This is one of the criminals on the cross. He seems most angry at Jesus of all of them. His response to Jesus is most bitter, if anything. And we see this in verse 39. And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. That's a word that speaks of blaspheming him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This isn't really that surprising, though, if you think about it. If you actually look at this world with spiritual eyes that are informed by Scripture, even this response is not very resp- very surprising because, as we see over and over again, people in the world tend to die the same way they lived. He lived his whole life blaspheming God, ignoring the conscience, and now he has no concern for his eternal destination either. You tend to die the same way you live. If you live your entire life ignoring God, you will hate and ignore him even in your death as well. Now, this is very interesting because both Matthew and Mark say, actually, initially, in the beginning moments of the crucifixion, that both criminals were reviling him. Both of them were. Both of them were mocking him. Both of them were, were, were treating him with contempt. Uh, both were equally as bitter towards Jesus. Uh, both didn't want this Savior who would die. And this is kind of, when we, when we look at this first criminal, we see here an application of warning to us, right? Because it's very easy for us to understand that, hey, when life is going well for you, when, when you have power, when you have position, yeah, you don't want to follow Jesus because then you have to you know, take up your cross and follow him. What person in, in, in power wants to take up their cross and follow Jesus? What person that has lots of things in this world wants to take up their cross and follow Jesus? Have the threat of maybe losing things in order to follow Jesus. But here we have a warning, right? You, have, you can have trial and trouble and pain and poverty and you can be on your, your deathbed and still not have a soft heart towards God at all. You can... Treat him in death as you treated him in life. Matter of fact, with the human heart, that is almost assured. Your heart becomes harder the older you get, the longer you live. 
And if we were to parallel him to the other criminal on the cross, think about it this way. You can see, this is, this is J.C. Ryle, you can see the same Christ on the cross dying, saying the same words, praying the same prayers, and respond completely differently. Because naturally, in and of yourself, you are naturally a hater of God. That's what Ephesians 2 tells us. You reject God, you resist Him, and all your pain, all your suffering, all that does is make you hate God more for not getting you out of your problems. Notice what he says. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. That's what sinners want. That is what embittered sinners say. I will only believe in you as the Christ if you get me out of this problem. Embittered sinners reject Jesus because their lives are too hard. Their lives are too bad. If God cared for me, he would show me in how he would save me. And, and the truth is here, when you come to the cross, when you come to the cross of Jesus Christ, and, and you'll, even, you'll even have this moment this very week as we talk about the, Christ, uh, the cross on Friday and on Sunday, you'll have, you'll have a face-to-face encounter with Jesus, and that will tell you about who you are. It's an insulting thing. It's a foolish thing to those people who are pretty good in this world. It's a weak and impotent picture for those who are pretty powerful in this world. The cross is empty and also useless to those people who are embittered in this world. It is pointless, right? It's pointless to your pain in your life right now. Everyone has a reason to reject Jesus. And and, and notice, it doesn't matter whether your life is good or bad. We see rejection in all spheres of life. But this, of course, leads us to our last person, an individual who, as J.C. Ryle would say, perhaps shows the glory of Jesus Christ more than any other sinner that Jesus encountered on earth. The glory and power of Christ. We'll refer to this individual, this category, as the humbled. He is looked to by the humbled. He is not scorned, rejected, reviled, hated, but he is looked to by those who are humbled by their own sin before God. Remember what I said. Both criminals started out reviling and rejecting and and spewing out all sorts of blasphemous venom at Jesus on the cross. They were kind of this surround sound of cursing. Jesus was receiving it from the ground, from soldiers and from religious leaders, but also Mark and Matthew would tell us from both criminals as well. But then MacArthur says this, something has changed in this man. His sudden outburst must have startled and surprised the other criminal. But what the two of them had been saying about Jesus, he now found repulsive and frightening. He confronted the tragic condition that only moments before had been his own. In a moment, he went from being a part of it to being unable to comprehend it. Notice what he says. We see it in verse 40. But the other rebuked him, the first criminal, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. 
remember, he didn't come to the cross, we're told in the gospel accounts, spiritually softened towards his condition. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been reviling Jesus in the other Gospels. He came to the cross just as hard as the other guy was. Matter of fact, J.C. Ryle would say of this thief, he was a wicked man. This is the one we're talking about. He was a wicked man, a malefactor, a thief, if not a murderer. We know this for such only were crucified. He was suffering a just punishment for breaking the law. And as he had lived wicked, so he seemed determined to die wicked. And you don't even have to take my word for it or J.C. Ryle's word for it. This is what this criminal himself says. I deserve to be punished. I deserve this punishment. In fact, you can see that in verse 41. He he rebukes the other man. He tries to get him to stop. And he says to him in verse 41, We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Right? He, He puts an emphasis, a double emphasis on how much him and this other guy deserve to be on the cross. Uh, basically, we justly, this is fitting, this should happen. We are getting what we deserve. We are receiving our due reward. This is right and fitting. This is, this is what we should receive for all of our crimes. Now, we don't really know what exactly their crimes were. I think there's a strong argument to be made that they were with um, this man called Barabbas that we hear about in Luke 23, 18 through 25. They were with Barabbas. They were revolutionaries. They probably had murdered many people trying to bring about an insurrection in Jerusalem, and they were captured and caught. And the only reason Barabbas wasn't with them was because Jesus took his place. And if that's the picture that we see of both of these men, then, then we see men that are hardened by evil. They, they have, it's been a long time since they've felt a tinge on their conscience. They are to be crucified because they were very, very significant criminals. But what changed? What changed in this man? Was it just that he had a different attitude in coming to the cross? No. Something happened on the cross that changed him. And he certainly did change because you see it. You see his love and concern for his fellow criminal. You see his terror and fear of God. And you see his sense of guilt. You see all of these things suddenly change in this man. And all we hear, all we have here only gives us one conclusion about what changed. Well, the Spirit of God came into his heart and transformed him from the inside. By the power of the Son's word, and according to the plan of God the Father from before the creation of the world. That's the only explanation we can have. Only the Spirit of God can change a person so dramatically like this. It says in Acts 16, 14, uh, talking about a woman whom God changed, Lydia, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to the words that were spoken to her by Paul. That's what happened here. The Spirit of God got into this criminal's heart and mind and transformed his sight of the entire crucifixion scene. 
the, the, the scriptures only give this explanation, in fact, for why sinners change their mind about Christ. It's because they're no longer just them, but the Spirit of God is opening their minds and hearts to receive Christ Jesus. And we also see he was able to hear the words of Christ. Perhaps they were those very words in verse 34, where Jesus is saying to the very men that are crucifying him, that have also crucified this criminal, Lord, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And maybe in that moment, this criminal is saying, if this Jesus suffers so innocently, perhaps he is the one who they say he is. And perhaps if this Jesus can look at these men who are currently crucifying him and seek their pardon and their forgiveness, perhaps he would also receive me and grant me pardon and forgiveness. It's, it's an argument in his mind really quickly from greater or lesser. If he forgives them, he can forgive me as well. And the Spirit of God gets inside of this man and causes a desire for that forgiveness. This is the same words that you can receive comfort from as well, because the the very same Jesus who in verse 34 is seeking the forgiveness and pardon of those who have crucified him is the very same Jesus who says, whoever, in John, whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. And we also see in Hebrews 7.25, right, that he prays to the uttermost for his own. This is what this man sees. This is what changed. He changed in his view and his understanding of who Jesus was and what Jesus did. And seeing the innocence and righteousness of Jesus in his death, he was convicted of Jesus' person. And he was also, as we see, convicted of his own sinfulness. This is what happens when you receive the gospel. That's what happens all at once. You understand who Jesus is, and you understand who you aren't. Just some fruits of the Spirit, we'll call these. The fruits of the Spirit on the cross, you could say. This is how the Spirit works. This is what the Spirit does. John 16, 8 through 11 says, He it is who convicts the world concerning sin, concerning righteousness, concerning judgment. We'll, we'll take all of those three and just say, this is what happened to the criminal on the cross. He was convicted of sin, of righteousness, Christ's righteousness, and of the coming judgment. How was he convicted? Number one, he was convicted of God's judgment. The fear of God overwhelmed his heart and his soul. This is different than the unregenerate man, right? It says in Romans 8.13, the unregenerate have no fear of God in their eyes. But this man had a fear of God. There's this episode in, in Luke 12, 12, 4 through 5, where, where Jesus says this to people, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I tell you, but I will warn you whom you uh, warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast in hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. One of the themes of the, the Gospel of Luke is the fear of God, right? I, I'm not just going to fear the people that can do outward damage to me. I'm going to fear the one who can do eternal damage to me. This is a proper attitude of the heart that this criminal has. Suddenly he is aware and sensitive and concerned about his eternal destination. 
He has a conviction of judgment. He also has a conviction of sin. When you are convicted of sin, you begin to see yourself as you really are before God, not as you are before other people or because of your circumstances, but because of who you are before this God who has authority to cast you into hell. Matter of fact, when you become a Christian, the common experience is you start seeing yourself even better and you become a greater and greater sinner the longer you are a Christian. This is a picture of one who is truly convicted by their sin. We see this in, in Luke 18, where Jesus tells this parable of these two men who are praying, and one is a uh, chief priest, a religious leader, and the other is a tax collector. And the tax collector responds well to God because he says before God, because he recognizes who he is before God, he says this, beating his breast, not even looking up to heaven. It tells us in Luke 18, verse 13, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This is, this is what happens in your heart and in your soul. You begin to realize, I have not done what I should have done, and I have done what I should not have done. That is the sign of conviction of sin. And he is also convicted of righteousness. He is convicted of Jesus. <laughs> For all we know, he knew very little of Jesus beyond what he had heard about him on the cross from the religious leaders. But thanks be to God that they testified of him, even ironically. They testified of him saving others. They testified of him being the promised king, the king of the Jews. And even in these ironic terms, this man had a heart when all else were rejecting Jesus and despising Jesus and deserting Jesus to receive and seek Jesus because of even their testimony. And notice how much about Jesus he knows. He knows that Jesus is completely innocent. He even knows that Jesus will be returning someday to set up his kingdom. Notice what he says in verse 42. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He is not only convinced of Jesus' innocence, he is also convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that will truly, truly set up a kingdom that no man can overthrow. All of my efforts as a revolutionary have been a waste of time. I want to be with Jesus. And so he asks Jesus, Jesus, remember me. And he gets all of this, from what we can tell, by simply seeing Christ on the cross, which is foolishness and weakness and anger causing to every other man there. What is bitter to some is beautiful to others because of the Spirit of God. And he asks this request of Jesus, remember me, this is not just a, a plea to please uh, bring back this information into your head sometime. It would be kind of nice sometime if you just remembered me. No, it's the kind of word that you say to say, hey, could you have care for me? Could you have concern for me? Could you do good for me? And, and notice the boldness of his request. When you come in your triumph and set up your kingdom, have me with you. And the response here is amazing, glorious, beautiful. This is Jesus on the cross. Every word that he speaks is a trial, pain in his hands and in his feet. Breath is precious. 
Every word costs him in pain. And what do we see from Jesus? Jesus speaks words to this criminal of certainty. Truly, he tells this criminal. And he speaks words of immediacy today. And he speaks words of promise that are personal. You will be with me. And he speaks words that are wonderful in paradise. You will be with me truly today in paradise. And Jesus shows, even though he is killed like a criminal, that he dies like a king. And suddenly we realize Jesus cannot save himself, for this is how he has chosen, purposed, planned to save others. And the the final two thoughts, the pictures that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ are wonderful. Follow me in these last two wonderful glimpses that we get from this story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a wonderful, number one, a wonderful picture of the gospel. It's a wonderful picture of the gospel that you embrace. It's a a picture of the gospel that is true spiritually of every single person that receives it, that you are an enemy of God. You are a reviler of God at one moment, and then you are humbled by your sin and by the fear of God into crying out for mercy, remember me, care for me, receive me. And though you are a criminal at war with God, you become remembered and a friend of God. A recipient of personal promises, you get to be with Jesus for eternity. I love this story. And I'll always look at this story the same way. Alistair Begg says this in describing this scene of this thief in heaven. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? What a moment. He gets to paradise. Everybody around him is like, why are you here? I knew you your entire life. There is no reason why you should be here. I actually saw you on the... Why are you here? Is it something good that you did that impressed God? No, not really. Did you have some secret life of righteousness that you didn't tell anybody about? Not at all. Why are you here? And all this criminal can say, the man on the middle cross said, I could come. That's all the gospel is to you. The man on the middle cross says you can come and gives you promises that are wonderful, personal, powerful, immediate. We, we see even in the gospel talking about how those who believe in him, he gives eternal life in present tense verb forms, right? You have you have eternal life in you right now. Why? Not because of something you did or something you said. But because Jesus said you could have it. That is the wonderful picture of the gospel. 
But also here in this episode, we see a wonderful encouragement in the gospel, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ gives us wonderful encouragement. And it's this, Jesus seeks and saves people like this. All gospel of Luke long, we've been seeing the kind of people that Jesus seeks and saves. It's sinners like this. And I know none of you see yourself as a criminal on the cross being crucified for insurrection. So all of you should be able to conclude in your head, if Jesus can say this to this kind of sinner, then Jesus can even receive this kind of sinner. This is where assurance in the gospel comes from. From a mind and a heart that is no longer trained on yourself to having a mind and a heart that believes and obeys and is trained on Jesus Christ alone and what he says to you. And this is the gospel according to the criminal on the cross. It's a wonderful picture and it's a beautiful, beautiful promise to you as well. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, I thank you for this time and I pray for this week that we're coming to that all of these students would see the wonderful nature of the promises of Christ that are offered to all on the cross. I pray that you would remove distractions from our eyes and from our hearts as we talk about these significant moments and that we would be led to greater and greater praise. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.